We're on the farm of the Golden Fork winner of the 2019 Great Taste Awards on the programme this week. We farm everything. We farm all our animals free range and then everything that we sell, um, we produce ourselves. We'll find out how a small scale farm can survive and thrive given the current conditions and nail another myth that we should all stop eating pork to save the environment. You know, there's nothing you could grow here and most importantly, there's nothing you could grow on quite a lot of the land that we have without the manure from animals. You know, what vegetation would be left without this this natural environment the week in agriculture this is the farming program with sean dunderdale good morning first this week defra has confirmed two million pounds funding for farms hit by flooding this summer it's for those areas around wainfleet in lincolnshire and in north yorkshire both covered extensively here on the program applications for the farm recovery fund opened on friday with grants from 500 pound to 25,000 pounds available Simon Fisher of the NFU has been working with those in the Wainfleet area since those devastating floods back in June. Simon, are you welcoming the fund? Uh, We are delighted to see this is uh, being launched. Um, Basically, the Farming Recovery Fund is open for business. We've been working, obviously, to um, get this fund raised for several months now since June. And uh, it's really good news that it's come through. So there is now a little bit of money coming through to Wainfleet farmers to help them restore their land following the floods. Yeah, so this, this money, you know, it could be damaged farm buildings, it could be getting the soil back to where it needs yeah, to be, because that's the big job, isn't it? Yeah, the, the prime, primary purpose of, of the sort of ideas we suggested to DEFRA for this area were basically it's there to restore production for, of arable and horticultural land and grassland as well. There'll be one livestock farmer who's pleased about that in the middle. Um, uh, but it's basically things like soil restoration, so uh, alleviating compaction. Um, there are quite big structural issues in the soil um, that's been underwater for 10 or more days. Um, so it's uh, things like restoring open drains, cultivation operations, which are going to be needed. And actually, um, it, it's quite clear that, that some farmers will need to have longer, you know, it's not just a quick fix this, it's quite it's longer term strategies to actually get their soils back to the state they would have been in prior to the flood. And you're holding a uh, special session on uh, October the 3rd? Yeah, we are, yes. We're doing a farm recovery fund workshop on the 3rd of October. We have um, the RPA who are administering the fund are coming up to explain it and, uh, and, and outline how people can apply. Uh, and we've also asked um, uh, local um, soil and cultivation expert Philip Wright to come and speak about post-flood um, soil restoration strategies, um, which I think is it's sort of a good link up with with the scheme because then farmers will be able to see how they might be able to use the scheme to help pay for some of those strategies um, as they go forward. And, it, and it's vital, isn't it? You know, the, the, this the, the money is needed, that advice is needed because without it, as you say, it's going to take years to to put this. It soil is, on. yeah. It, it's not. Um, I know from the uh, Wrangell Bank Sea Breach, uh, what 2013. And okay, accepting that that was um, that was a saline incursion uh, in, into the fields down there. Um, it's really taken four or five years to get those fields back to their productive um, state that they were in prior to 2013. In this area, it might not take that long, but it's certainly going to be uh, one or two years. And I think the key thing really is that um, farmers don't rush the restoration strategy they adopt gently and slowly probably is better in terms of getting the soil back quicker than, than actually just pushing it to start cropping it as soon as possible. This money 
as you say, is for that recovery. It is yeah. not for those crops. We've talked before about you know those thousands of acres of crops that have been uh, destroyed. This isn't about getting revenue back for the crops, no, is it? Farmers not, are still out of money. They're still well out of pocket on this. Um, the the uh, the, sea, the breach in the bank um, uh, will have cost. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands in this area. Uh, I mean, we, we haven't yet seen a final estimate, but I mean, I've seen some figures from individual farmers say what their losses are and, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds is is uh, is some of the levels we've seen. So um, we we uh, we know, and I mean, wider area of whole of South Lincolnshire, if you recall back a few weeks ago, we had a cauliflower shortage in the country. I mean, that is basically down to the fact that in June, uh, a lot of cauliflower crops were affected by the, water, the excessive water rainfall all over South Lincolnshire. So you can see that actually the ramifications of June are quite wide, not just to Wainfleet, but they're actually a lot wider to the whole of South Lincolnshire. And that money's gone? There's no way of any getting any, any um, of that back? Not really, no. Government don't compensate um, for rainfall. <laughs> they, they, uh, it would be a very nice thing if they actually paid some more money out to help, uh, help deal with it better um, in terms of drainage. But... Um, um, that's uh, you know that's another that's another battle and another issue we've got to uh, uh, raise the ante on. If we're going to see these sorts of climatic events more often, then what we've got to do is make sure that the river systems in the area are fit for purpose and actually can carry water away and not spill it out onto farmland. Indeed. Thanks for that. That's Simon Fisher at the NFU. Now, if you're on social media, on Twitter, I'll post a few links that will hopefully give you more information on how and where to apply. Uh, You'll find that on our At Farming Show Twitter account a little later today. Right, off to Redhill Farm now. A few weeks ago, you might remember, we chatted with the chair of Ladies in Pigs. Well, today, another lady involved in pigs, Jane Tomlinson. Uh, Jane and husband Terry set up Redhill Farm from scratch, uh, pork scratching maybe, uh, some 28 years ago. And they've just won the Golden Fork at the Great Taste Awards for the second time. That's on top of three of the much-coveted three-star awards as well. So what is it that they're getting right? Well, I went along to see Jane at the farm at Morton to find out uh, it was sunny As you'll hear, though, a little bit windy. Uh, Surrounded by her pigs and piglets, I congratulated Jane on the great taste win, of which she's naturally delighted. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, we're amazed actually. Um, It was there's so much competition for pork now, and uh, for us to get this three three stars for a start, um, I think it puts us in a 0.0. 4% of all entries or something um, so that was amazing and then to go on and win a golden fork um, which is actually our second one in five years um, which means we've basically beaten all the other pork in the country is just fantastic. <laughs> Take us back to where it all started, what was it, 20, 28 years ago here on the farm? Yeah, where Terry and I came to Red Hill Farm in 91 and it was an absolute derelict farm, dry sandy land, buildings falling down um, so no good for farming but perfect for pigs, free range pigs and you've built everything from scratch yes yep yeah. we started uh we started our herd uh completely from scratch and so we were livestock farming for eight years and then so 20 years ago this october i started red hill farm free range pork i thought we, there was a need to sell our pork ourselves the same as every other farmer who's uh, a primary producer um because they were getting paid nothing for their, their wonderful quality product that that's the that's the point and also um i was just in 
sense with the dishonesty and labelling really you know everyone was told they were buying British um, you know wherever whether it was a supermarket or or even a high class country butcher you know <laughs> they, they were all um, so farmers markets has been a big part of our journey uh, doing those for 20 years and uh, when you're selling your product in front of your customers day in day out like that you, you know you have to get it right and uh, I wish we we're more than happy to so we uh, we farm everything we farm all our animals free range and then everything that we sell um, we produce ourselves so we dry cure the bacon we make our sausage by hand uh, we make our pork pies um, everything's fresh made fresh as well um, and uh, last sort of eight years we've had our own beef grass-fed beef and, and lamb as well now we're on very sandy soil at the moment this is ideal for for the pigs isn't it it is yeah there, there's a myth that pigs like mud well they do <laughs> on a beautiful day like today you've chosen a lovely day to come it's lovely warm and sunny and the sand on top is really quite warm so what we have we have big what we call wallow troughs so they're about the size of a bath um in the uh, and it's drinking water it's mains water so they can drink fresh water but they can also get in them to splash the water out um it's not for them to swim in you know sit in the in the troughs but then that splashes the water out and all the the sand uh, around the the trough and, and the soil below turns into a bit of mud so they make themselves a lovely mud bath so you can see them now they're coating their skin in, in the mud and uh, but once they've done that so that's like a sunscreen for them uh, once they've done that when they're happy they'll get up and they'll go back to their piglets um, in their hut um, but they want their feet dry they don't want to be in mud all the time but as far as the land goes, yes, that was why we came here. Um, it was dry, sandy land, so we're quite comfortable as well in the fact that we haven't taken prime crop-producing land out of the system. <laughs> you know, there's nothing you could grow here. And most importantly, there's nothing you could grow on quite a lot of the land that we have without the manure from animals. And uh, the the fact that we, we talked earlier about the cows and the sheep and the... Um, you know, it's just idyllic here. We've got the, all the wildlife, and and that goes down to the the bacteria in the soil that's fed from the manure, which then the the worms uh, feed on, and then you've got your your insects and your grubs and your and your plants and your, your butterflies and your bees and you know what vegetation would be left without this this natural environment uh, that we're trying to protect and i guess that you know being here on the farm and the fact that this is going through to your shops as well and to the farmers markets you you know you're using everything that you possibly can and and it's it's value for money as well yes yeah i think that's that's a I'm so pleased you said that. <laughs> that is such a myth. I think people think they have the impression that we're expensive because we're free range. Uh, we are genuinely free range. When you've bought something that's you think is cheaper and it's free range, it really isn't. It's not possible. You know, we're selling in Lincolnshire at farmers markets. Our prices are not expensive. Um, what you get with us though is is you you're buying fresh product without the packaging so you're not seeing uh, you're seeing a pack price in a supermarket but you're not taking any notice of what the meat content is what else they put in that um, product um, uh, and the packaging um, the fact that the weight if you look at per price per kilo you know we're, we're really extremely value for money because you you could go to 
the most premium supermarket premium farm shop and buy uh, the most expensive pork that you can find if it's not free range then you've wasted your money quite frankly think about what you're eating if if you if you choose to think about what you're eating um it's about eating less buying less but buying better quality and uh, what no one is really talking about at all with this discussion about um, food is the waste that we have the absolute a shocking waste and, uh, and when it when it's meat it's wasted because it's so mass-produced it's so cheap that people don't value it so you buy more than you want it's readily available everywhere um, and then so you can afford to, to oh just eat the prime cut and throw the rest away if you eat less eat smaller portions eat it less often um, you know <laughs> and and cook with it yourself um, and then you'll eat it you'll savor every bit of that meat and um, the last thing you'll do is waste it well just describe the scene we've we, we have the pigs here we've got the piglets as well trotting around they all look very relaxed um plenty of uh, of open space um as well i mean it is it's idyllic isn't it especially on a day like today it is beautiful um one one of our things are really um over the years of having conversations with people when people like yourself come to the farm for the first time is i hope you can see how calm everything is mm. the pigs are extremely happy they've got tails and um, they don't have tails indoors and they're rooting um to deprive a pig of being able to root with its nose so that means it's just pushing its nose through the soil it's picking up little stones pushing you can see that one pushing that plant around um you know it's their they use then and now it's touching its piglet with its nose it's it's it, that's its um or everything its whole world is is through its nose mm. it's so sensitive and in, in an indoor system all that's taken away uh, from the pig so it's absolutely miserable so what we do here is we give our pigs a completely stress-free life a natural life um, they have everything they need to hand freely ready and available that's plenty of space plenty of fresh air they're in their own groups as well so they're a sociable animal um, but they have their fresh water they have their feed they have their shelter um, their huts are insulated so they're warm in winter and cool in summer um, you know and but most importantly with what we do because we're not a big scale and we're not wholesaling uh, you know in bulk and um, there's no pressure on this business you know we're not we're not producing we haven't got production targets or anything or sales targets so these animals are allowed to grow at their own pace and what is most important is we don't impose anything on them that they don't want there's nothing artificial and um, what i've come to realize in anything anything that you make when when the process is made quicker cheaper or, or easier uh, for, for the producer it's always at the detriment to quality and when that's animals that's animal welfare and, and we're not prepared to do that and it clearly is working the fact you've got the golden fork the fact you had the three stars I hope so <laughs> um, what we've done is we've really gone about proving our quality everybody says they're award winning everybody says it's local you know all this outdoor bred all outdoor reared it's, it's, it's meaningless you, get, you prove it you know and that's what we have so for once we're a farm we're a producer and everything you buy from us is exactly what you think it is and that i can assure you is extremely rare that's jane tomlinson at red hill farm with their free range pork very passionate about what she does as you could hear and hopefully despite the wind you could also hear the sows and piglets in the background as well if you listened carefully enough if not 
listen again. That's the joy of listening on the podcast. Now, Jane touched on those campaigns suggesting that we cut our meat consumption and actually use the land to grow more plants and vegetables, helping the environment. Well, as Jane said, the sandy soil just wouldn't be suitable. And I know our agronomist Sean Sparling agrees. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Sean. I tell you, uh, (laughs) we've been round this a few times, but you better brace yourself because we're going to go through it again. Look, Agricultural land in the UK, 17.2 million hectares. That's not going to get any bigger. That's, if anything, going to get smaller because that incorporates arable land, pasture, woodland. But the pressures on that from an increasing population size, from we need more houses, more shops, more schools, more roads, more businesses. So it's only going to get smaller. Of that 17.2 million hectares, just 4,667,000 hectares is capable of producing arable food crops. And we've we found that out over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years where the land which is capable of producing arable crops is. And it's just 27% of that total area. And your arable crops are your, your cereals, your grains, your pulses, your root crops, vegetables, nuts, seeds, salad crops, all of those grown on just 27%. And that too is finite because there is no land extra to that which we could go and grow crops on believe me if there were we would be doing because it's far more profitable to grow arable crops than it is to grow livestock however that 27 percent would be considered productive land and that's east anglia down norfolk suffolk up into yorkshire some very productive land up there in scotland but if you picture the uk 73 percent of it is grassland upland the fells the yorkshire dales the the hills the devon cornwall welsh mountains cumbrian hills it's totally unsuitable for anything other than livestock farming now that non-productive land has been turned into productive land because we put ruminants onto grassland and pasture and a ruminant is capable of breaking down plant material we're not our stomachs won't break it down it goes out the same way as it came in in terms of what it looks like but a ruminant with its four chambers in its stomach can break down the cellulose so it comes out the other end that plant material as something which is useful as a nutritional form and that means the bacteria break it down and it breaks into constituent parts of nitrogen phosphorus potash manganese magnesium sulfur copper zinc all of those things get fed back into the pasture which feeds the pasture which feeds the livestock which feed us so we've taken 73 percent or thereabouts of the uk which is not capable of arable crop production and we've put a certain amount of it into pasture which then grows livestock which is an alternative source of food so this is a wonderful little island for how we farm and we utilize that 17.2 million hectares of agricultural land to its fullest extent and to assume you you could just get rid of livestock and take grassland out and put it in with arable crops is absolute folly. It's absolutely ridiculous because if we could already do that, we would already be doing that because there's more money in arable crops than there is in livestock production. But pasture-fed systems are very, very eco-sound. So as you drive around, you should admire the fact that you've got livestock in the field which are acting like little factories turning that plant material into a source of fertiliser which feeds the plant material, which feeds the animals which are feeding on it. And livestock production is crucial to the UK economy, always has been, always will be. And remember that farming is the last big industry we have left in the UK, and it will be farming which sustains us going forward. So that's enough of my rant. That's why you can't just rip a grass field out and stick it in with a crop. Um, Let's go on to where we are today, agronomy. Um, 
Cabbage stem flea beetle continues to be the complete pain in my backside that it was last year. I, it's a difficult job, this, because there's no silver bullet. There's no perfect advice I can give anybody. We're all having problems. Um, last year, we found out that if you drill oilseed rape too early, you get two or three generations of adult cabbage stem flea beetle attacking it, which means two or three generations of egg laying and therefore larvae infestation is much higher on an earlier drilled crop of oilseed rape. We also saw that when it was drilled that bit later at the end of August, into the first couple of days of September. Establishment was difficult. Growing away from the adult feeding damage was difficult, particularly when it came so dry. We took a bit of rain last weekend. That's helped these crops move, but they're still not romping away. Looks like there's some more rain coming next week. I keep my fingers crossed because that too will help. The wind will get up. That'll stop the cabbage stem flea beetle being so voracious. But some rules in some fields don't carry over for rules in other fields. So I've walked into fields at nine o'clock in the morning that are teeming with cabbage stem flea beetle. I go back to that same field an hour later and I can't find any. After dark, go out with your flashlight, see if they're out in the field. If you can hit them, you can control them. But there is no perfect system. There is no perfect rule. You, it's trial and error. And we just have to hope that we get through the season with a crop that we can harvest and that is worth some money. But constant monitoring, attention to detail and trying a little bit of everything by talking to your neighbours is probably the best way to do it. They continue to be a complete pain in my bottom. So other crops, if you're considering drilling winter wheat out there at the moment, if you're on black grassland, your crackers, we haven't had anything like a flush. It hasn't even really started to come through. I saw the first few black grass plants in some all seed rape the other day, but really nothing to mean anything, certainly not from a stale seedbed point of view. And if you're drilling conventional wheat into non-black grassland, then I think you're probably way too early doing that as well because of the pressures of barley yellow dwarf virus in a season, our first season without near nicotinoids really in the field because anybody that's been using them on the seed will have buffered those of you who don't use them against the effect so it's important that on stale seed breads we control the green bridge it's important we control volunteers where these aphids can be harbored and it's important we cultivate them in and bury those aphids everything culturally now needs to come into play to help combat barley yellow dwarf fire. there's always something sean isn't there isn't there just always? Thanks, Sean. Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. There's always something and there's always open field. Let's get the uh, weekly update from Jerome Fielder this week. Markets um, increased by £2 over the last five trading days, trading at £136 on the November 19 futures. Unfortunately, all seed rate prices have fell by more than £5 after a bright start to the week. Export pace continues, which is supporting our nearby prices. Looking more closely at the wheat market and what's affecting it, the early US maize yields have disappointed. And although the USDA's report last week didn't reduce the maize yield forecast greatly, more adjustments are expected in the October report once more maize has been harvested. There's been a flurry of international wheat tenders this week, with Egypt, Algeria, Ethiopia, Tunisia and Turkey all in the market for a combined total of 1.5 million tonnes of wheat. It's worth noting that despite much talk of demand destruction, that the export pace in the US, EU and Ukraine are way ahead of last year's pace, with only Russia off the pace slightly. Australian and Argentine export availability could potentially reduce as well, given their current dry conditions. 
The UK domestic values continue to be supported by the existing substantial export programme, with most operators concentrated on execution, having maxed out elevation capacities until the end of October. The lack of clarity on Brexit continues to frustrate forward trade, although there is still interest to non-EU destinations which ebbs and flows dependent on the currency with the US dollar. Looking at the barley market, internationally the UK values are under pressure due to the pound firming. The UK this week missed a 50 million tonne tender of Algerian feed barley and we were out by three euros with France reportedly getting the business. Domestically, feed barley is not picking up the demand needed to clear the surplus, so prices are being driven by the pause. Malting barley values are still under pressure, as maltsters are taking a very hand-to-mouth purchasing approach. Things may change with a Brexit delay, though, as this will give more time for the malting barley export programme, thus supporting markets on the further forward positions. The all-seed race market has come under pressure this week, there was a lot of expectation that we'd get a rally in the market after the drone strike in Saudi Arabia. However, the crude oil market has fallen back, with the pound strengthening 0.8% on the week. We are down by about 5 to £10, pounds, depending on your location. Now looking at your ex-farm values, feed wheat is trading spot at 122 to 124 pounds with november trading at 128 to 130 pounds may values are at 134 to 136 pounds feed barley values are between 107 and 110 pounds spot with 109 to 112 pounds in, in november and 116 to 120 pounds for may all seed rate values are 324 to 327 pounds. November 19 is 326 to 329 pounds, with May prices at 332 to 335 pounds. X farm, all depending on location. Milling premiums on wheat are 15 to 20 pounds for full spec Group One, and the malting premiums for a standard 185 Planet contract are circa at 10 pounds at the moment. For any inquiries or grain marketing advice, please speak to your local Openfield farm business manager. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. That's Jerome Fielder at Openfield. Right, on to the weather. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. It's fair to say autumn is arriving this week, a rather unsettled week ahead. Certainly cooling a little. It might feel a little fresher as well. There could be a shower today, but it should be mostly dry. We're looking at highs, 22 Celsius. The winds from the south-southeast, 15 to 20 miles an hour. Tomorrow, the winds are more from the southwest. Again, it should be dry, though, through the day. Some rain nearer midnight, and that could be heavy for an hour or so. Highs tomorrow, and indeed Tuesday, are nearer 17 or 18 Celsius, with overnight lows this week in the early teens. Now, low pressure will take charge by the middle of the week. That does make it rather unsettled. It'll certainly be quite windy. It might be wet as well though it is a bit uncertain right now as to whether we will get that rain. Uh, The hourly forecast through the week will know for sure. For now, though, that is the forecast. Next week, a look at oilseed rape. I'm getting lots of reports that crops are being lost because of the flea beetle. I mean, need I remind you what Sean Sparling thought of the flea beetle earlier? They continue to be a complete pain in my bottom. Let's uh, try and see how widespread an issue it is. That's next Sunday. Until then, have a good week's farming.